Hey there, welcome to the show and, you know, happy long weekend. I hope that uh, everybody is taking a little bit time for the family and enjoying things. Uh, you know, we uh, we talk about real estate so regularly here that uh, sometimes I forget, you know, there are there is a holiday season and, you know, not everybody's running out buying real estate, but I still believe there's quite a few of you that are. And by the way, I got a great show plan for you. Um, as you remember, perhaps if you were listening last week, I had Bryn Lackey join me. She's a columnist at Toronto Sun, also a realtor. Um, so uh, we were able to get uh, some extra time with her. So uh, I do have her joining me a little bit later. And I've got Dave Butler from BM Select. And why is Dave going to join me? Well, Dave's on the show regularly, but of course, most of you know that the Bank of Canada just decided that they didn't like the affordability of the mortgage rates right now. So they decided, what the heck, let's put it up. So I am going to talk about that. I'm going to be part of my rant. And uh, before I go down that road, don't forget, coming up, I have my Simple Real Estate Investment Webinar. That's on Thursday, May the 5th at 7 p.m. You can go to thesimpleinvestor.com to register. And uh, I am going to talk about interest rates. I am going to talk about who are the best lenders out there. They're getting tighter, folks. Um, you know, there are some banks, I I'll tell you, they just really aren't that great when we talk about investment real estate and uh, you know what i'm going to dissect them i'm going to show you who who does what and you might be surprised so anyways it's going to be uh going to be exciting so that is thursday may the 5th at 7 p.m and go to simpleinvestor.com to register but as i mentioned uh of course the bank of canada decided to just push the envelope a little and put a little bit more pressure on everyone. And it's kind of funny because, you know, as we take a look at the market, we know that the market is starting to slow down a little. You know, we've got the government, you know, jumping up and down saying that, oh, they're going to help us. They're going to be our saving grace when it comes down to inventory and foreign buyers and all this stuff that I talk about regularly here on the show. You know, and as most of you know, my opinion is it's not the foreign buyers it's not the speculators. It's not the investors. You know, we do talk about lack of inventory. And guess what? Government's finally recognizing it and saying, we're going to throw a few of your dollars at the inventory issue. So they uh, they keep saying they're going to solve the red tape problem. Again, you know, proof will be in the pudding and we have to wait for that one. I think we're going to be waiting for a little while before we see any big change there. Making some commitments, you know, to low income housing, that kind of stuff, you know, definitely, definitely need some assistance there. I think that uh, they've just left that one hanging in the lurch. So for sure, we need to see some of that. And, you know, ultimately, you know, what's going to happen now with the bank rate going up? So what does a half a point mean to you? It means that potentially if you are working with variable rate mortgages, and that's one of the things I would encourage people right now, variable, by the way, historically is the better place to be. We're looking between around 2.4, 2.7 range. So still an attractive rate. I think it keeps affordability there. I'm going to talk further with Dave in a minute about that. But, you know, when we talk about the five-year fix, that's the one that has had a lot of pressure on it because of the bond market. So where does this all lead? Is it all going to be up, 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 or are we actually going to see it plateau at some point? Well, I think that's going to happen when we start talking about things such as recessions. We talk about, you know, inflation and again, keeping a mindful eye on the rest of the world. You know, 
do we get some solutions which you know might take the uh, the increase out of gas uh, you know the oil industry are we going to see some things that'll change in the in the narrative in the world with covid um, again we know what the first part of covid did it actually you know drove real estate prices up but the interest rate down so is this going to continue well again this is you know i i think only time will tell but most importantly, I think that we need to talk about the supply and demand and where we're sitting today and what is actually being bought the most. So right now, as I analyze the numbers and I take a look at some of the reports that came out recently, you know, we've got some of the outer areas, the outer suburbs, you know, we call them Oakville, but you know, Burlington, you can talk about Ajax, Whitby, things like that. But we're seeing some fluctuation in pricing and, you know, you can talk year over year or month over month. And what does a month over month mean? Well, when month over month means you know comparison of february to march and soon it will be march to april and you will see numbers adjust and then we'll also see averages adjust and this is where we have to be really clear on the numbers and be very exact because when you hear that the average sale price is going down automatically everybody assumes that the market is receding but when you actually analyze what the property was that sold and the number of them. So in other words, the condominium market has always been a big driver of the marketplace. And when we have more condo selling and less detached home selling, that skews the actual number, meaning the average is actually lower because we're talking about more sales in lower priced homes. So this is where, you know, I have to take a look at these numbers. And right now, when I hear, you know, some of these marketplaces, they're saying, oh, you know, month over month, the numbers are down. Um, it, it's not the actual hardcore brick and mortar real estate that's down. It's just the average size of the property is down. And again, we saw that at the beginning of COVID. We saw that uh, throughout the the you know pandemic where we actually saw detached houses. You know, more of them came on the market. So all of a sudden, the averages jumped through the roof when we didn't see the condominium market. And when we see more condominium sales come in then what we see is we start seeing that average price go down. So this is how we have to analyze it and we have to make sure that everybody has a good understanding on on some of these reports. And again, I struggle with some of these reports because I look at them, you know, each each day, each week, each month and you know, they just seem to be misleading. And I think I don't know if it's just that shock factor that some of these reporters want to do, uh, you know, send out there. Um you know, one of the things I do like about, you know, talking to somebody like Bryn Lackey is that she is an active realtor, but she also, you know, is very involved in crunching numbers and trying to drill down what is happening in a marketplace. And I think, I think if we're going to listen to people, I think these are the people that we need to listen to. Um, I will say though, you know, it's funny because you know I'm on on other shows here at News Talk 1010, a uh, fair bit with Jerry Agar between nine and noon. And it's funny because some of the comments that people, you know, make and, and they say, well, you know, he's just a real estate investor. Why, you know, he shouldn't have a say in the market. Um, just for clarity, and I do want to just clarify if you're just listening to my show for the first time or the first, you know, month or whatever. Uh, my experience, actually, I've been in real estate for more than 30 years. And I come from a uh, being a contractor background. So basically brick and mortar construction all the way up. And so I've spent 30 years in real estate, trading real estate, investing in real estate, you know, working for some of the major lenders in Canada when I used to sell all their power sales and we have an active property management company. So, you know, very much entrenched in real estate itself. And for myself, 
you know, I do have to dive in and see where the numbers are. Where is the economy going? What do we suspect is going to be, you know, a change in any marketplace throughout Canada, not just Ontario? Because again, you know, we know for a fact that, you know, if the Vancouver market starts to change, there's going to be a shift eventually here in the GTA market. Or if we see Montreal heating up, we know that there's going to change perhaps to the East Coast. So there's different parts of the market we have to analyze. And this is what I hope to do on a regular basis here on the show. I like to keep everybody up to date, not just with headlines, because headlines, I think, are the ones where, you know, people, there are a lot of people call themselves real estate experts. And really, unless you own it, you know, build it, live it, finance it, and, and, and work with it, it's really tough to say that you're a real estate expert if you haven't been through markets that have gone up, down, crashed, you know, uh, exceeded expectations. You know, we knew that when we started seeing the bubbling over right around 2017, the government didn't have to jump into the into the fray and start pushing back on, on the foreign buyer tax. You know, we knew that we were at that mark, but they decided to get involved. Now, once again, are they going to take credit for the market that's going to, and by the way, you will see it soften, not go backwards. Soften means not the same increase percentage-wise. And they're going to start saying, well, it's because the foreign buyers. It's not going to be the foreign buyers. It could be some of the interest rate hikes for sure. I think that that will kind of stabilize the market. But we've also hit a threshold where people are just, you know, the people that wanted to buy have bought. Now you're going to have pent up demand and this is what's going to happen. But we have to create a cycle. So I think that the cycle is now going to kick in. And a lot of people don't analyze the cycle. But it normally runs at an 18 to 36 month cycle where we see a lot of pressure come up. And you'll see the people that were sitting on the fence. They decided to rent, decided to stay at home with mom and dad and save some money. And now they're getting ready to do the next step. So what happens, you know, with this cycle is the fact that we know first time home buyers are the biggest part of the cycle. So this is why this current cycle right now will have a, a little bit of more of a dulling effect because we know that the interest rates and first time home buyers, those two go hand in hand. And so with the interest rates that dropped, at the beginning of the pandemic, this is where we saw the first-time home buyers come in full tilt because of such low interest rates. Now that we see interest rates start to push up, this is going to affect the first-time home buyer, which means it also affects the first-time home seller. So this is that cycle that I talk about, and I think that that's where we're going to you know, keep our eyes on. Uh, I think the condominium market is the one that we will see will have the most pressure on it because of interest rates. People that are buying just so you know people that are buying uh, properties in around 1.5 or 2.5 million dollars when they're coming out of their second or third home they have equity typically they're not going after those homes with five percent down you can't anyways but this is why we're going to have to keep an eye on the marketplace and that's something that i like to do here obviously every single week we do it for our investor base we do it you know to make sure that we know exactly what's going on and that's one of the reasons why i like doing the show you know, uh, I've been doing it for, for quite a few years. I think we're up to nine years now. Um, you know, my producer, uh, Ian Grant, has been here making it simple for me for this, you know, so many years. So for me, it's really about, you know, keeping everybody informed and, again, getting rid of some of the narrative that floats around to get people all stirred up. Again, you know, a big part of it here is it's I'm not anti-government. I'm just anti, you know, people trying to make something out of something that's not. So again, my narrative on the uh, the foreign buyer, this is the, it's not the foreign buyers controlling it. You know what? It's we are going to see the market soften up a little, and it does have has nothing to do with the foreign buyers. But 
as I mentioned earlier, my uh, my webinar coming up. If you if you haven't signed up and you do want to know a little bit more about investment real estate, you know where the market is. You know where where are the near areas that you should be focusing on because there are some interesting areas that I think are going to have incredible uh, you know decades of of growth. So uh, I will be talking about that. You can go to simpleinvestor.com to register. And by the way, when I come back, I've got Dave Butler joining me. So stay with us. We'll be right back after this. And welcome back. As I mentioned before, joining me now, no stranger to the show. In fact, he'll be coming up again in a couple of weeks for our Real Estate Talk Triangle. He is Dave Butler, and he is the owner of BM Select. Welcome back, Dave. Thank you very much, Todd. Appreciate it. So, uh, you know, nothing that really happening in the mortgage world, is there? You know, this could just be you and I talking about life, or we could talk about, oh, I don't know, a half a percent increase to the mortgage rates. Yeah, what a week. What a week indeed. Uh, you know, Bank of Canada with uh, not one, but two hikes. Uh, effectively, traditionally in our world, a considered a hike is about a 0.25 increase. Um, in this case, the Bank of Canada has gone and done a 0.5 increase. I think most Canadians expected something like this. Um, you know, however, I know there's a lot of Canadians that are on the outside wondering, you know, how are all these rate hikes going to affect Canada, uh, you know, in the long haul, we've got Canadians non-financial debt to GDP is over 350%. Um, that's not generally a situation where you can find yourself raising uh, the country's rates. So a lot is going to happen certainly over the next, uh, I think, six to eight months with regards to the direction of rates and where they're going. Um, but short term, certainly it looks like the Bank of Canada has uh, made an aggressive move. So Dave, here, here's the thing. So we're going to have a lot of our listeners that are, they, they hear the fact that, you know, we've gone up three quarters of a point, you know, interest rates, you know, people are going to start asking you, I'm sure you'll get those phone calls, you know, Dave, where should we be looking? What kind of mortgage should we be taking? What would be your advice today as we said? Today is, believe it or not, no different than my answer three months ago um, in that, in that, Variable rates need to be considered as what I believe as a primary, uh, you know, kind of landing spot until we have a lot more certainty. Um, currently today, the five-year fixed rates at most Canadian banks are going to be over 4%. However, the variable rates, even with this most recent increase by the Bank of Canada, most people getting a brand new variable rate rate today are going to be anywhere between, say, 2.4 and 2.7. Still a very, very, very attractive rate. Now, most people will say, well, Dave, what do I do in the event that these rates continue to go up? And I, I like to explore the option of saying, well, we have to really look at the overall picture. Do we really think that Canada is going to have 5 and 6% five-year fixed rates? Do we really think that the Bank of Canada prime rate is going to get over four and a half, five percent? Um, I think it's going to be very tough for them to do that. I think by doing that, raising rates quickly, they could kind of kickstart themselves into a recession. And that's been a discussion that's been going on for quite some time is that will we enter a global recession with everyone raising their rates so quickly? And of course, what do we do when we are in a recession? Well, most governments and central banks will reduce the rates to kind of give that quantitative easing. So we are in this weird position of where we could see rates go up this year, which they're doing and continue. But if that happens, the reciprocal effect there could be that the rates come back down as the government tries to fight the recession. So we are in a situation where a variable rate to me 
seems like the most attractive position. It's going to allow us to be in a lower rate. Yes, it may go up a bit, but there is a high chance that we end up seeing that rate come back down. And more importantly, then everyone in a variable rate has the ability to lock into a fixed rate. And instead of taking a fixed rate today after they've flown high, maybe it makes more sense to play the patient game and see if we can lock into a fixed rate that comes down over a bit of time. Okay, so then the next question, because, you know, I'm displaying devil's advocate. Um, should some of our listeners be taking a look at, let's say, a different amortization? Can they get 30-year amortizations? You know, there's been, I know there's some B lenders out there that talk 40-year. 40, 40 Is there the opportunity for some of these lenders to offer that out? So, yes, in the, in the A mortgage world with all the Canadian banks, we are able to get as high as a 30-year amortization when you are refinancing. So for some Canadians that feel like they're getting themselves into a bit of a bind that currently in the temper in the position that we're in temporarily with rates increasing they may want to give themselves a bit of ease on their payment they could certainly talk to their bank or mortgage broker and ask about extending the amortization out to the maximum 30 years this will create a bit of a cushion on their payment now when can we do that a lot of people have been coming to me saying dave my renewal is coming up this year what do i do can i extend my amortization on a renewal, generally speaking, you have to keep your mortgage terms all the same. The only change there is usually your interest rate. That's if you're staying with your current lender. However, if you change that from a renewal and treat it more like a refinance, meaning we want to change some terms within the mortgage, we now can look to get up to as high as a 30-year amortization. And again, providing a bit of a cushion for Canadians that are feeling a bit of that crunch. When we talk about doing a refinance, Dave, and I'm going to keep diving in on this just, just because I want our listeners to have a good understanding. If somebody owns the property, they go to do a refinance, let's say they change lenders. Um, right now, we do know that the stress test can still be in place in some situations situations. But what is the typical loan to value ratio that you can get on a refinance today? Well, with most A lenders and the big Canadian banks, you're going to be able to get up to 80% of the value of the home, assuming that your income and debt servicing ratios qualify. With some B lenders, you can get as high as 80%, sometimes cutting back to 75 or even 70, depending on where the property is and how much the lenders like the file. So certainly you can access a good amount of funds. And let's look at it like this. People might be saying, well, 80%, I bought my home three years ago at 5% down. Well, the market and the values have obviously gone up tremendously. So this would be the time to speak with your banker, speak with your broker, see about looking at your file, potentially get an appraisal done on your home to see what true value you do have in it that you may be able to access. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up appraisals because that's one of the things that, you know, we always encourage everybody when, when you're sitting in a marketplace like this, as we know, you know, prices are high. I always advise people when the opportunity arises that they should have an appraisal. It's handy, not just for things such as refinance, but if anybody decides to move out of the property and rent it, when they turn it into a rental property, it's important that they have established a value the day they move out. That way it is capital gains exempt. You know, and, and Dave, that's one of the things I think that we've got to be mindful of is, you know, the way the government's going 
today, we could be taking a look at some capital gains to people with primary residence. They have bandied about this talk of having uh, principal residences subject to capital gains. Currently, they do not. So as to your point, if you are going to take a home that you own today and you live in and you're going to turn it into a rental, you must be crystallizing and making sure that you've got that value. You do not want to get hit down the road if you were to sell that home as a rental with a massive capital gains issue because you did not go and crystallize the value at the time you change it to a rental property. So very, very good point. Something that's not talked about a lot, Todd, but certainly from a financial planning standpoint, this is a paramount part of the discussion some people you know david i've seen this from experience is that you know five years after the fact they go back they try to go backwards they sell the rental property then then the government comes knocking on their door for capital gains it's really hard to establish a value five years later but if you have it in print if you had a proper you know proper residential appraisal done on it then at least you're able to cover your butt so i think i think these are the kind of important things for people so when uh, Dave, if you were if you're going to take a look at giving advice, you know it seems like you're really leaning towards a variable. I would I would concur 100% with you today. You know a lot of noise still being made about investors. They say you know people that own multiple properties. You know it, it's almost like they're demonizing it, and and I'm struggling with the narrative right now because again they think that if you own a second property, bad. Like we're the ones creating the problem, where it's actually people that are trying to stabilize their future. It's a bit of short-sighted thinking. I mean, the opportunity that this market has created is going to bring in buyers and people that are going to try to see value. Um, I think we don't want, as Canadians, to have big corporations finding themselves with an advantage to come in, swoop in, take a bunch of our real estate, because I promise you this, we're not going to get it back in the hands of Canadians at that point. So I think it's very important that we look at maybe less demonizing Canadian real estate investors and really really looking at maybe the system itself and how we can make it more healthy for your average Canadian buyer. I don't think we're going to ever get away from investors. The amount of technology and information that is out there that is flowing has now been seen by so many people that everyone believes that with the right opportunity, they can become an investor. We don't want them to feel that that's not the case. We really want to try to keep a a healthy housing market in Canada. And I believe that not having Having a lot of properties in the hands of big corporations is something that will help us in the future. Always a pleasure having you on the show, Dave. Just wondering, what is the best way for our listeners to reach you? Yeah, they can get in touch with our office at one 684 They can also send us an email. We are at info at bmselect.ca and uh, happy to work with any of your listeners, Todd. It's always a pleasure. Excellent. Thanks so much for joining me today. And uh, folks, when we come back, we have more. So stay with us. We'll be right back after this. And welcome back. Um, As I said, just before the break, I had so much fun with one guest last week. I thought I'd ask to have her come back. So joining me now, Bryn Lackey. She is a real estate columnist at the Toronto Sun. And Bryn, welcome back. I really appreciate you joining me again this week. Oh, thanks so much for having me. This is fun. You know, I uh, as, as I mentioned to you last week, you know, I do uh, I do love your articles. Um, sometimes they give me a little bit of uh, motivation for certain topics that we talk about uh, here at Simply Real Estate. And you know, we didn't uh, we didn't probably have a long enough show for you and I really to delve into some of the hot topics. And as real estate has evolved, you know, and I'm gonna, I'm going to tell you, you know, my perception over the last two years has been incredible. You know, we've been in the COVID situation basically for two years. 
And what we've seen as far as the change in how real estate transacts, in fact, you know, going to more of the, the DocuSign, the multiple offers, you know, really no presentation. Everybody's just throwing offers at agents. Um, I do want to talk about transparency just to get this ball rolling with you. You know, the idea that, you know, they had tried to introduce the idea of maybe forcing people to do more of an auction style. Uh, when we talk about, you know, negotiating real estate. And, you know, I've got my take on it. I want to hear yours. Yeah, I mean, so the interesting thing from my perspective is I actually, my 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 real job is I'm a real estate agent. You know, I have worked in real estate for um, 11 years now. I worked downtown. I, you know, I came into this business when multiple offers weren't really a thing. Something hot would become multiple. Um, but over the course of a decade, I've sort of seen it evolve. And certainly through the pandemic, as you've seen sort of, there's, there's like a FOMO element to it is all I can really say is there is a, an added layer to the motivation in buyers that I've never seen before. And I, you know, was working in Leslieville with young families who so they're motivated. This is, un, you know, sort of unseen for me at least. So when we sit there and we talk about blind bidding, um, you know, I, am experiencing these offer nights. I'm experiencing how to give good advice to my clients where no one ever wants to let their client overpay or no one any good at their job. Because also just from a logic standpoint, the great fear is what happens if circumstances change and they need to sell that house tomorrow. You know, so the idea that agents are thrilled when their clients are overpaying is just not that. However, the way the process goes is we are prohibited from even intimating the contents of an offer. When we have offers on a property we have for sale, the seller's directive is receive all offers at this time. We are prohibited from even, as I said, suggesting the nature or the contents of the offer. Um, and so people sort of have to come and take their best shot. I think that has been abused. Certainly, I think there are some agents who, um, I mean, the fact that we now have a very clear offer registration process with documents that we're required to hold tells me that, yeah, there were people who would let um, prospective buyers bid against themselves. I think now we have enough sort of stop gaps, stop, stop gaps to make sure that that's not as much of an issue, but now we have, um, a paper trail, but the idea is that I think people believe that you vastly overpay because you don't know what's in there. And so what's been proposed is opening it up, making it more transparent. And the irony is, what we have as a classic example of the alternative is what they use in Australia and New Zealand, which is an open auction format. It's, it's exactly what you picture, a bunch of people standing around, waving their hands in the air, um, getting caught up and uh, actively, you know, face-to-face -face competing with one another. And the criticism there is that it has resulted in a really overheated market in Australia and New Zealand. Like sellers insist on the open format because they think that's what drives it to the maximum dollar. So I think the issue in both cases, the common thread is you have really motivated buyers and you have strong sellers markets. So as long as that's the condition we're dealing with, I think there's no way that the actual bidding mechanism is going to be responsible. At the end of the day, someone who wants that house will figure out a way to pay what they have to pay to get that house. Yeah. You know, and, and, and Brent, I'm going to ask you, you know, as a realtor, you know, you will see a, a house uh, come up for sale and they'll put a price on it. And, you know, a lot of people know that if you, if you undervalue the house, you're really trying to promote multiple offers. I mean, 
you know, in in some opinions, you know, and when I when I was transacting for many many years, you know, one of the things that you know people always want to do, and and the seller will say, what is the best advice to get the highest price? So now we've got a lot of realtors that are saying, you know, listed five hundred thousand dollars under what it's worth, but you know, in in some ways it's a bit of a bait and switch, and you know, again, governments saying that they're they're going to try to you know, get involved. First and foremost, you know, as a realtor, I'm pretty sure you don't want the government involved in your backyard. But the one thing is, is that, you know, is there anything that we can do because to control the idea of, look, 500,000, we know that when people come come back around, they go, oh, you know, we sold it for $600,000 over the asking price. No, what you did was you sold it for $100,000 over the market price, which is just telling you where it is. So, you know, the, the idea of disclosing these numbers, it's it's getting muddy. It, oh, I mean, and that's the thing. It is muddy. And what I always say is I would love this to be cleaned up because I think it's bad for my industry. You know, I think I would like there to be a blanket ban on those little riders that go on signs that say sold above asking. Like explain to me how that is, a you know, is that something that you're going to brag about because you've priced it intentionally well. I mean, I will say that the underpricing to produce multiple offers that started um, that was not widely adopted. It started and then it worked and you found that it started in neighborhoods where there was strong competition. I remember I used the Lesterville example a lot, young families competing for houses. So I think it happened organically. You know, they would put a price on it. Turns out a bunch more people wanted it. They would fight over it. Price would go up. So I think bit by bit that took root. At one point, it wasn't in the luxury space. Now you're seeing offer nights on houses that are $5 million. Um, across the board, we are sort of at this moment where we have sellers who want to make sure that they're not leaving money on the table. Uh, we have a ton of competition for these listings, right? So if you, there are 60,000 agents, I think was the last thing I heard. And that old idea that, the, you know, 80% of the agents do, or sorry, 80% uh, of the deals are done by 20% of the agents. Like there's a lot of competition. So you want to show your value. So I think when you see agents who are pricing things like demonstrably laughably low, where you might as well just say it's, just slap a for sale sign on and say, just bring us a number. Um, it's creating the idea that we're all kind of clowns. You don't know what's going on, but I think there's a bit of, you know, foolishness, but then we also are sitting here where if you look at how prices have risen in the last two years in particular, how are we actually um, landing on market value? You know, I think we can sit there and we can look at all the comparable sales when we're listing properties, we're looking this house sold across the street, this has sold around the corner, this was the list to sale ratio, you know, all of the all of the numbers. But at the end of the day, when everything is sort of driven by this fierce competition among buyers, you want to make sure you're also not eliminating that sort of alchemy part of it. And that's kind of how I see it. It's a bit of alchemy. So if your job is to make sure that your sellers are well protected and well um, sort of covered, your fiduciary obligation is to make sure that they are getting top dollar for their house. Um, I think that's why you're also seeing a lot of agents who, as much as we hate doing it, I don't enjoy doing it. I prefer to just say, this is the number. You know, I, I did this recently. This is the number on the house. Offers anytime. No one believes that anymore. They go, well, what's the angle here? So at a certain point, this is just market condition. So as much as, you know, I think a long, a, a long um, process towards this has gotten us here, I think a lot of people would love to see it be different. But how are we going to do that without you know, blowing up sort of the rhythms we've already established. Yeah. And, and, you know, in all fairness, when, when a seller is putting, you know, a house on the market, 
you know, it is, it's really their right to make a decision on how they're going to price it and how it's transacted. And I think, you know, back to the idea of the auction style, you know, it's amazing how many people say, well, you know, I want to see the other person. I want to know what they're bidding. But in actual fact, when we take a look at it, as you said, it can actually be a heated battle. It's it's like a contest. And they look at the other person, they size them up and say, there's no way you're getting this house. This is going to be our house. And I actually think it inflates it more than we do with the, with more of the closed bidding process that we have here in Ontario. I mean, yes. And then what I always think about when we're talking about Australia, and I would love someone to tell me more about this, is when someone, you talk about cooling off, at least when you're sitting there and, and we're improving offers by having conversations or we have a strategy going into it. And so, you know, um, you have a chance to improve your offer. We sit down, I fill it out in DocuSign, I send it back to you. There is a moment there. I'm not sure how it goes when it's literally in the heat of the moment um, and how that shakes out. Like, are people, how, how does that work? Are they pre-qualified? Do they have bank letters? Like, how does that go? And to me, it seems way more rife to be abused. Um, and, I, you know, I, again, all of it to say, as long as people are going to fight with each other, either in an open style, a blind style, the prices will follow. And as much as we can try to calm it down, at the end of the day, if we had more supply <laughs> and if we had a different sort of market condition, it would be a non-issue. Yeah. You're seeing right now, we're in this little funny moment. Um, agents are saying, you know, is the market shifting? We don't know. Um, but we're seeing some signs that the, you know, the FOMO that has driven it for this long is, is uh, receding a little bit. As interest rates are coming up, you're seeing now offer nights where you're getting three offers, not 10. So I'm not sure if that tells you anything. Those are all blind houses. Some are getting their price. Some are absolutely not getting their price. It to me tells me that the blind bidding was not responsible. It was buyer confidence in what they could afford to spend, afford being relative, of course, but what a property was actually worth going for. And yeah. so I think that if the idea is that blind bidding is responsible, well, no, people are cooler heads prevail. We're seeing great houses, three offers, sometimes not even getting the price. So I think that's more of a structural aspect of our market that I think will certainly step in and regulate the blind bidding nonsense that we worry about. Yeah. So, Bryn, we're going to go to a quick break. But, folks, when we come back, I'm going to have more with Bryn Lackey. So stay with us. We'll be right back after this. And welcome back. If you're just, just joining me now, Bryn Lackey is my guest. She is a real estate columnist with the Toronto Sun sales rep at Chestnut, Chestnut Park Real Estate. And, Bryn, just before the break, you and I were talking about the idea of blind bidding versus, you know, the auction style and really what's happening with the transactions. You did touch on something just before the break, and I thought I'd bring it up. You know, the month of March, uh, some people are starting to say that the market is cooling off a little bit. You know, we dropped down in the GTA to about just over 11,000 transactions on any given month. You know, that's considered quite large, but because we've had so much pressure in the marketplace, you know, 11,000 might seem like a little bit less than everybody's hoping for. But when we talk about the, the actual market itself, let's talk about interest rates because with the upward pressure by the Bank of Canada and they're suggesting that we're going to see another rate increase, um, you know, do you, do you see this cooling the market off drastically or is it about time that we did increase interest rates? Well, that's, you know, the million dollar question. I, Anytime I hear people definitively saying anything about what's happening, 
I'm reminded of the, you know, the old story of the person with crystal ball. Like none of us know what's happening. Even the economists don't know what's happening. Leading up to the last interest rate hike, you know, people were saying they, they had called that months before. Um, I think we're all just sort of looking at what's going on and trying to make sense of it. And very smart people um, are not even on the same page. So I think from there, you can kind of just look and say, okay, well, this might be unfolding that way. But I think it's a safe bet that none of us know. I think we're seeing some signs that things are shifting and we can question um, what that might be. I think the rising interest rates, I think the idea that, and I've touched on this before, I think the idea that money was basically free and now it's now or never, get in while you can, rates are going to go up. We don't know what's going to happen. Um, you know, the idea that we're up 18% from 2021, like that's a year when we've also had an inventory crisis. So when you look at it that way, um, I think now that rates are going up, I think people are pretty clear that something is shifting. So there is a, a bit of a pause. Buyer psychology um, typically reigns supreme. You know, you see new legislation um, brought in, you, you know, even the foreign buyer tax in 2017, that had an immediate impact, but not for any real reason. We figured out that it wasn't foreign buyers that were driving the market. But, so why did we see such an immediate seize? And I think people take a beat. They want to look, they want to see what happens. And I think right now, now that we know that, um, you know, money is only going to get more expensive and we're now up to sort of pre-pandemic levels, I think that plus the broader instability, inflation is wild. Gas prices are wild. We have a war in Europe. There are so many things that just anyone, you know, with a brain that rattles would say, hold on, this could have really strong impacts for our economic picture. So I think that is what's causing people just take a beat. And when people take a beat, competition, you know, subsides a little. And then um, certainly investors who have been driving this market, if they're pausing, I think that's why you're sort of seeing pre-construction or condo assignment sales in the 905, where you're seeing it sort of almost immediately impact. So if people are sitting there saying, let's just wait and see what happens. I think that's why we're seeing this immediate shift. Yeah. Now, I do want to shift gears um, and actually we'll shift location a little because a lot of people ended up buying in the outer markets, you know, pushed out to the suburbs a little during the pandemic. And now there are employers that are going to start mandating people to come back. Could be a hybrid program, could be full time. You know, there has been discussion where they feel maybe the outer markets are going to soften up a little. How are people going to handle the commute? You know, one of the things that as an employer myself, I know that we've got a lot of people that do want to get back into the office. Some people do look at hybrid programs. You know, in in in, in my opinion, I'm going to ask you yours, of course. In my opinion, I think a lot of people have now been educated the benefits of the outer markets. We may even see some people decide to do employment changes if they're mandated back full time. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think I often talk about how in working with buyers, especially the forced upsizers, right? Like the young people, young families, where they were being forced to take on more, more of, you know, a house debt than they actually wanted to because their job was here and they still wanted to have a family and they wanted to, you know, enjoy their life. So they're buying houses, not happy about it, feeling house poor. And I think the pandemic uh, really triggered a lot of people to make the move that they had wished they could. You know, we had all, I, I have friends and, and clients who sort of packed it and said, you know what, I'm moving pre-COVID, moving home to London. You know, I can buy a house there for what my condo is here have a really nice life. 
And that was starting already because the market was so inhospitable and so expensive that it was very hard to make it work. So the pandemic kind of gave a green light to do that because remote work became the norm. I think now that we're seeing, you know, some of that magical thinking come to bear, I think a lot of people thought, well, it'll be fine. I can do this sort of forever and I'll drive back in once a week. And that may be the case, but I think the people who rushed off to Bancroft, Ontario, for instance, um, now gas prices are quite high. And turns out employers, as much as there were a lot of articles talking about how it was sort of the end of offices because they were thrilled to shrink their footprint and thrilled to shrink their sort of that overhead, employers want their staff back in the office. So I think you will, just to touch on what you said, I think you will definitely see um, people shifting careers. I think anybody who works sort of in tech or can work remotely, you know, by nature, um, they'll be fine. But I think there are a lot of people who are being brought back to the office and they're going to have to make a decision. And then the added layer to that is how do you get back in the city? If the outer areas, there's going to be a correction with prices, which we don't know that that's what people are talking about is, is we starting to see a correction outside of the city. So the people who bought in through their Toronto money at the sort of exurbs bought something big, drove the prices in that area up. Well, if they start to see a correction and they can't get out what they paid and then Toronto has you know, gone wild, I think that's an added layer of complexity where what are people going to do? We've seen uh, in, and I've spoken to a few different brokers where they've said that they actually the people that have bought in the outer markets are enjoying the lifestyle. And what they're doing is they're actually looking at either micro condos or even some kind of rental in Toronto if they're going to have to come back. And so they'll kind of do a hybrid commute where, you know, they'll live here in the city and go back to the properties because, again, that lifestyle has now been established. And I think you and I both saw a fair bit of this where people people started putting in a lot more emphasis on home when everybody gets locked into it. I think I think it was part of our run-up, you know, the people that were living in that 600-square-foot condo and they had to work from that condo as well. You know, it was great when they only had to sleep there and then they could go out to restaurants, go to gyms and everything else, but the fact that to live under that roof for a long period of time. So that's where we saw that big shift and they started going after bigger bigger square footage. Mm-hmm. And I understand that. You know, I, I 1,000% understand that working with young families where the Toronto options are small. So you got actual space where, oh my goodness, you can have a living room and a place where you can go hide all the plastic toys. You know, I think that is, was a welcome relief for people that that was even available without having to sort of go against the grain too much. And I think that, you know, and I remember even saying like, what could this mean? Could this be sort of the resurgence for the small towns that were decimated by Walmart? You know, does this mean Main Street's coming back? And I think that probably is the case. I think we're going to see that for sure. But the tricky spot is there. I think there was a lot of um, optimism around how easy it would be to sort of do both. And I think that right now we're in that moment where micro condos, where you could, when the pandemic first started, people were like, oh, wow, those people who invest in micro condos, good luck to them. Except those really are pretty magical options right now. Except for the fact that, you know, the condo market is really, really tight. It's really hard to even find rentals that are bidding wars on. Um, Gas prices are high. That means buying a second car in some cases. And we know that used cars are so high. So (laughs) I think, yeah, there are ways around this for sure. I just don't think it's as um, smooth sailing as I think a lot of people thought when they were sort of busting out of town. Yeah. 
Well, listen, Brent, it's been a great pleasure having you back on the show. And um, definitely, you know, we'll stay in touch because I'd love to have you come back. Uh, if our listeners want to reach out to you, can you give us some contact way? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at Bryn Lackey. Um, sometimes people say nice things on there. Um, otherwise, I'm uh, BrynLackey.com. Excellent. Well, listen, Bryn, thanks once again for joining me today, and we'll be in touch soon. Thanks so much. Well, it was great to have Bryn join me again. So Bryn Lackey, she's a columnist from the Toronto Sun and a licensed realtor in the GTA. So great having her on. Uh, I do want to thank Dave Butler from BM Select joining me this week as usual. Uh, he will be back in a couple of weeks with me. Uh, he's going to be part of our talk triangle. He's a panelist, been doing it this year, and it's great having him on. And uh, I do want to thank Ian Grant. He keeps it simple for me every single week. But most importantly, I do want to thank you for tuning in and sharing your weekend with me. And uh, of course, I will be back next Sunday as usual at noon. I'm your host, Todd C. Slater. You've been listening to Simply Real Estate right here on News Talk 1010.